0: Good afternoon, everybody. Hope you're doing well. Uh, If you have a Bible, I invite you to open it and turn to Psalm 84. Going to be looking at Psalm 84 today. If you've been with us this summer, you know that we've been having a fun time this summer in the Psalms. It's going to continue until uh, September 1st. Uh, So this week, we're going to be looking at Psalm 84, if you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the pews. I'm going to be reading from the ESV, those are the NIV, perfectly capable, great Bibles as well. Just know that the wording might be a little different. So if you're there, I'm going to go ahead and read. And uh, I know we've heard a lot of things this week already. And um, let's listen to, to God's Word carefully. Psalm 84. in your house, ever singing your praise, blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, I pray that our trust would be in you, that you would open our eyes to the beautiful things that are in your word, the treasures of some that we may see on the surface, but others we have to dig deeper to uncover. Lord, would you uncover those for us? Thank you for your love. Thank you for coming to us, dwelling with us, so that we could know you, put our faith in you, and live with you forever. In your name, amen. Recently, I've come to the, to the conclusion, to the realization, that sermons are a lot like boxing matches. In boxing matches, there's a lot of tension. There's back and forth. There's also much more detail that goes into the sport than you think. There's footwork. There's when to counter. There's when to throw the right hook. There's when to throw the left jab. Knowing whose reach is longer between you and your opponent, where you stand, how that affects your fighting style. And of course, after the back and forth, there always comes the culmination, which everybody is looking forward to, the knockout. That's, that's all we want to see in a boxing match, right? We just want to see the knockout, the 10-second YouTube clip. But some boxing matches, the knockout comes quite early. Q. 1986 Tyson versus Frazier. Mike Tyson, that is, 20-year-old, versus Marvis Frazier, the son of, many of you probably know, Smoke and Joe Frazier. Both young bloods set out to advance their boxing career. Except the fight never really brought any tension because Tyson needed only 30 seconds to knock out Frazier. 30 seconds to land the knockout punch. I believe our text today... Is like the Tyson Fraser fight. I think the knockout comes early. The main point I want to get across today is this God's beauty and generosity should stir in us an affection for Christ and a desire to long, a longing to to dwell with him forever. His beauty and generosity should stir in us an affection for Christ and a longing to dwell with Him forever. A word that might stand out to you in that, or maybe it doesn't stand out to you, is the word should. His beauty and generosity should cause us to do that. How do we turn the should into does? God's beauty and generosity does stir in us an affection for Christ and a longing to dwell with him forever. I'm going to answer three questions from the text that I pray will help us to turn the should into does. And as I mentioned, the knockout punch comes early, and let me be clear, this knockout punch is not some cleverly crafted sentence I made up. I believe the knockout punch is is in the text. So, let's dive in with question one. It comes right from verse 1. The author says, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. So here's the question. What is God's dwelling place? Where does God dwell? Where does he reside? First, we have to realize this psalm, written roughly 2,500 years ago. We know that during this time, God's presence dwelled in, in the temple, which he instructed his people to build. Okay? But I I think it's important to take a step back and to look across the spectrum of all of human history to see where God has dwelled. Since he reveals himself primarily through his word, I want us to take a look at his word. It's it's his word that we must search in order to find out where our God dwells. So let's, let's put on our thinking caps. I know we're not in school. Thinking caps to begin with, and I promise you, you can take them off in a little bit. So in Genesis, when God creates Adam and Eve, he puts them in the garden. And I've never really noticed this. I think this is a verse we actually skip over. Genesis 3.8 says, "...he walked with them in the cool of the day. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden." Creation of man and woman wasn't just so that God could watch from afar and control them like puppets. There was perfect communion and fellowship with mankind. We see that in the garden, God dwells with mankind. And then we move to the next place where God dwells. We know that man sins, falls from perfect communion and fellowship with God. But God, in His mercy, He commands Moses a few hundred years later to build a tabernacle so that his glory may dwell in their midst. I'm not sure how well this is showing up. It's dim for me back there, but it looks okay. So we have the garden, and then we have the tabernacle where God dwells amidst mankind. Exodus 40, verse 34. I think we've got that on screen. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, that's the tabernacle, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Over and over in the Old Testament, God's repeats to his people, I will be your God and you shall be my people. A few hundred years later, in Solomon's day, God instructs him to build a, a temple. The thought of this dwelling with, with man on earth was so foreign to Solomon. This is what he says in, in 1 Kings eight twenty seven. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven in the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. But God, despite what man thinks, again, dwells amidst his people. So in the garden, he's dwelt with his people, and in the tabernacle, and the temple, amidst his people. And then, the climax of human history comes Jesus. John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus, Jesus. God incarnate comes to our playing field to dwell with us, among us. It's the beauty of reading the Gospels. You get to read conversations between God and disciples in the form of Jesus, of course. But as we know, Jesus was killed. He resurrected from the dead. He ascended. So where, where, where does God dwell now? His work on the cross is actually what made way for the next dwelling place, which is in you, in me. If if you have faith in Jesus, he dwells in you by his Spirit. One of my favorite verses in the entire New Testament, Ephesians 2.22, Paul writes to the church at Ephesus. He writes, In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So now the dwelling place... Is, is in mankind. It's in you. Of course, it's by nothing you do. It's by his Spirit who seals you. This is, this is both individually and corporately. I put us and the church. Because the church is, is made up of bodies. Is made up of you and me. First Corinthians 6, Paul says, your body is a temple of the Lord. And together, these many temples... People make up the entire body of Christ. And the only reason the building can stand is because the chief cornerstone is Jesus. Without the cornerstone, no building can stand. Are our thinking caps still on? Are, are Are we anybody tracking? Lastly, the book of Revelation tells us the final dwelling place of God is in the new heaven and the new earth. Revelation 21.3, God's voice declares from the throne, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. That's our future hope. So, so God has, has dwelt in the garden, in the temple, in the tabernacle, then in Jesus, then in us by his spirit, and then with us forever. Our bodies are going to die. The point I'm trying to make is not to put God in a box into his cute little five dwelling places and then wrap it up and say, great, that's wonderful. The point is to show that throughout all of time, God's dwelling place has always been with his people. This desire is so central to the very character of God that he has done whatever he's had to do to make this happen, to be able to dwell with those whom he created. In the garden Mankind ruined that. The tabernacle and the temple destroyed. Jesus killed. Us, we're going to die. New heaven and new earth. God is our son. He's our shield. He dwells with us forever, for eternity. But let me be clear. His dwelling place is lovely, not because the mediums that contain him are lovely, but because his presence is there. The garden, the tabernacle, Jesus, even me and you, we aren't the things that are lovely. God's presence is what makes those lovely. What a tremendous truth. God's desire is not to be some distant ruler who judges and condemns us from his faraway dwelling place. He condescended in the person of of Jesus to take away sin once and for all so that we could be in a relationship with him. I have to stop and ask, it's not a, not a cleverly crafted question, but do you realize this truth that God desires to dwell in you and that if you by faith, if you claim to follow him, he does dwell in you by the Holy Spirit I know that can sound cliche, asking Jesus into our heart and everything, but he lives in us by his Spirit. How does this change the way you live? How does this change the way you work? How does this change the way you have dinner with your family? How does this change the way you look at the neighbor who just moved into the house next door from Who knows where? That was us a year ago. The fact that God longs to be with us should make us long to be with him. That was supposed to be the knockout. His dwelling place is within us. And by the way, not what I said was the knockout, but verse one, how lovely is your dwelling place. It's incredible. It struck me all week. But just because the fight is over doesn't mean we're done here. In fact, I was watching the YouTube video of Tyson versus Frazier, and it was a seven-minute video, but he knocked him out at second 42 or whatever. But the I love the announcers. They went back and replayed all of it. They showed how, would, how did Tyson get him to that point to knock him out. They talked about the technicalities. They interviewed him. So I want, I want us to view these next two questions as almost looking back to question one, back to the knockout, back to the loveliness of God's presence, of his dwelling place. So question two comes from from verse four, but if you will look at me, look with me at verse four through seven. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, In whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Bacchah, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. So question two, how do you dwell in God's house? I think verse five through seven Tell us. I have three three main points I want to get across under this question of how do you dwell in God's house. First, those who dwell in God's house put their strength in him. Look at verse 5. Blessed are those whose strength is in you. I don't think there's there's a better picture, better illustration of this then Romans 4 when it's talking about Abraham. Romans 4:19, I think we have that on the screen. Paul says of Abraham, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body which was as good as dead. Goes on to say no distrust made him waver concerning the promises of God. But he actually grew he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Abraham at his age had no strength But God gave him strength. He found his strength in Yahweh, in the Lord. It's actually, this strength I think is what Paul prays for the church at Ephesus in chapter 3. Paul says, For this reason I bow my knee, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Those who put their strength in God. Those who get to dwell in his house. Second, those who dwell in God's house look to him in trials. Look at verse 6. This is where it gets a little dicey. As they go through the valley of Bacah, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. This valley is mentioned one time in Scripture. It's right here. When I read it, I was like, please help me find a commentary that tells me what this word means. Is it a place? Is it a word? Is it, do we even know what it is? Uh, to the best of our abilities, translators uh, translate that word to weeping. The valley of weeping. But we see this valley of weeping actually turns into a place of abundant springs. Reminds me of our morning turning to joy. Looking to the Lord in trials turns our valley of weeping into springs of joy. So those who put their strength in Him, those who look to Him in trials, and lastly, third, those who who dwell in God's house are those who abide in Him. In this text, the words dwell and house and courts appears nine times in 12 verses. Jesus actually tells his disciples exactly what it means to abide in him. If you want to turn with me to John 15, I don't think I have it on the screen, or you can just listen. John 15, verses 4 through 7, I want to read these verses. Verse 4, Jesus says, Abide in me, and I in you. you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. I tried to think of an amazing illustration of what it means to abide, and I think the best one is in Scripture, the one that Jesus uses, the vine and the branches. I read this text all the time, but do we really think about the fact that we are the branches? That there, without the vine, there are no branches? I mean, have you ever seen branches lying on the ground just looking great? No, they're, they're cut off. They're dead. Abiding in him means, means being the branch, means drinking from the vine, means resting in the vine, means remaining on the vine, means knowing that you, in fact, are the branch and not the vine. And you receive life from the ultimate source, who is Christ. Divine is, is God and His Word, and apart from that, you, you can't do anything. I can't do anything. So let me ask, do you feel more at home abiding in God's Word or abiding in this world? I think sometimes we can feel at home when we abide in this world. lot of things in this world that we run to? Maybe they're popping up in your head right now. Do you feel more at home connecting your branch to the vine of this world or to the vine of Christ? Because whether you know it or not, it's connected to one of them. It's not just sitting on the ground, neutral. It's either connected to Christ or it's connected to this world. So those who dwell in God's house put their strength in him, they look to him in trials, and they abide in him. Before we turn to question three, look with me at verses 8 and 9 of Psalm 84. The psalmist writes, O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed I was so caught up in, in fitting these two verses into my cool little structure, my three questions, it really rattled me. It really did. I finally realized just let him be. It's a prayer. I think the author is so caught up in wanting to be in God's presence that all he knows to do is to pray. I found myself saying, oh, why do these two have to be here? Why couldn't they be verse 1 and 2? It would just make this psalm so much better. It would break it down. Yeah, who am I to tell the psalmist when to write his verses? When to pray, that's better. I think what this prayer does is remind us that, that crying out to God is a byproduct of desiring to be in his presence. Crying out to him, praying to him is a byproduct of longing to be with him. If you think about it, it's, it's the closest we can get. It's how we talk with God. It's how we commune with him. So we've looked at God's desire to dwell with man. We've looked at how we dwell in God's house. Now let's look at the, the third and final question. Why would you want to dwell with God? Look at verse 10 through 12 with me. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Why would you want to dwell with God? Just read verse 10. It's true. One day in his courts is far greater than a thousand elsewhere. I don't think his point is, is that when it gets to a thousand, that's it. A thousand and one anywhere is probably better than one. No. His point is any number of days, a million, two million, three trillion. One day with him is better than that. And the benefits of being a doorkeeper in his house far outweigh than dwelling in the tents in the highest places with the wicked. One, uh, one commentator talks about how the author of this psalm, if you notice actually in the subscript, Psalm 84, at the very beginning, it says a psalm of the sons of Korah. One commentator talks about these sons of Korah, and they're mentioned in, in First Chronicles, and they're those who are the gatekeepers of the temple. Just to be clear, the doorkeeper mentioned here in this verse is, is not the same as the glorified church greeter volunteer. Now, those are amazing, and that's an amazing thing to do and, and to serve in that way. But this is different. This kind of doorkeeper written about was, was a no-name job that these Korites had in the time of the temple. People were assigned different gates of the temple to open every morning to guard. Here's a picture. Looks like it's from 1991, from an old computer. It's the best I could find, actually. But if you see all the little the little uh, descriptions, all these gates, and people would have to stand there and guard the gates. That's all they did. They made sure the people coming in were the right people. All they could do was sit there and stare at the temple. They couldn't go in. It took hardly any skill to be a gatekeeper. But the author was so caught up in the loveliness of God's presence in the temple at that time that all he wanted to do was be near the house of God. When I read that verse, a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere, my love of golf took over in my mind. (laughs) As I'm sure you know now, I think I mention it probably every time I get up here. And I imagine playing Augusta National for a thousand straight days, actually more than a thousand. Just could imagine that forever. Well, I mean, that's not even a great picture, but look how beautiful that is. If you don't, even, if you don't play golf, you probably even want to play there. And it's kind of silly, but I sat back and thought, would I really want to do that over one day in God's presence? It's okay. You can smile. You can laugh. It's silly. We all have our place. We all have maybe even a person we want to be with. Of course, I'd want to be with Katie at Augusta National Playing Golf. (laughs) I messed that one up. (laughs) I sat back and thought, honestly, can I proclaim Psalm 8410? Can you proclaim it? A day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. And the only way to truly mean it, I think, is to reread the knockout punch, reread verse one. How lovely is your dwelling place? It's so lovely that the psalmist can't even put into words. All he can say is how lovely. I, I want to say, tell me more, but all he can say is my soul longs for it. My, my, my heart faints. Literally means my heart dies for the courts of the Lord. We need to ask God, show me how lovely you are. What truly makes us long for a house is not the outward appearance. It's not the size of the home. It's not the soft mattress that you sleep on. Those, of course, could be contributing factors to wanting to, to live in that house. But what, what really matters is is Who is there? You could have all those things, but be hosted by the coldest, most angry, grumbling people ever, and you you wouldn't want to stay in that house for a day. Think about sleepovers as a kid. I know y'all still do it. You probably sleep on the floor half the time. You don't care. All you care about is, is who's there with you. Your friends, people that care about you, people that you care about. If you have to sleep on the pool table or the hardwood floor, who cares? The same goes with longing to be in the house of God. We long to dwell in a house not because of, of the golden gates or streets or the amazing banquet feasts. Although those are good things, we should long to dwell with him because he is there. So why would you want to dwell with God? Two things. Because his presence is beautiful. We're drawn to beauty. When's the last time you walked by a dumpster and thought, oh, that smells so good. That shade of green on that dumpster is so pretty. Let's go check it out. You've never done that. It smells horrible. You're not attracted to dumpsters because they're not pretty. They're not beautiful. You look out over the ocean. You're in the mountains looking down in the valley. Your breath is taken away. All you can say sometimes is, how lovely. It's cliche, but it's true. Why else would we want to dwell with him? Not only because his presence is beautiful, but because he's generous and he gives gracious gifts. Verse 11 tells us he's a sun and a shield, meaning he gives light, he gives us life, he protects us, he doesn't withhold from us anything that we need. Do you have the same desire that the author does in this psalm? If You're sitting there thinking, you know, I don't know, sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. Or maybe maybe you don't. Maybe you don't have that desire. I want to offer two questions to reflect on as we begin to close. They're not going to be on the screen, so don't look up there. Question one, and please hear this, I'm asking this to myself as well. Are you living in unrepentant sin? I actually wrote that out and thought, mm, that's, that's a little harsh. But I think we need to answer it. Sin is a barrier that keeps us from, from experiencing the presence of God. And it's not a barrier put up by someone else. It's a barrier put up by you and by me. But the good news is it's a barrier that doesn't have to be taken down by you or me. It's, it's taken down by someone else. It's taken down by Jesus. It's broken down by the forgiveness that's offered through his blood. Sin is is nasty. It's ugly, but it it can clothe itself in deceptively appealing garb. Presents itself beautifully to us, but all the while leading us to our death and destruction. A challenge, you ask God, to reveal to you where barriers of sin are in your life. Barriers maybe that you're actually helping build and you want to be there. Sin's fun sometimes. Jesus is better. Question two, are you putting yourself in the house of God around the people of God? And no, this isn't some secret way of saying, are you coming to church? After all, if it was, you're in church right now. I'm speaking to the wrong people. I want to get deeper than that. I love what Spurgeon wrote of the author of this psalm. He wrote, he loved the house of God because he loved the God of the house. Can we say that? I know I read it earlier, but I actually want to read Ephesians 2.22 again. And I want to tell you my favorite word. Ephesians 2.22 says, In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. My favorite word is together. We aren't being built into separate little temples where no one can get in your way. It's not just you and God. It's, It's us. It's the church. I'm called to point Todd to the cornerstone. He's called to point Joel to the cornerstone who's called to point his mom, Julie, to the cornerstone, who's called to point Eric to the cornerstone. We all have a responsibility to point each other to the true vine, to the cornerstone, to to Christ. As the worship team makes their way up, I want us to reflect on verse 10. And while the text says one day in your courts is better, I don't think this psalm is just about longing for the courts of God. I think it's longing for the presence of God. It's longing for the courts because God is there. It's only in his presence that we are completely filled and satisfied. And it's only possible because the chief cornerstone, Jesus, for our sake... Became sin, something so unfamiliar to him. He became sin for our sake, so that in him we could become the righteousness of God and receive access by faith into his grace, Paul writes, into which we stand. So as we strive to abide in Christ in this life, may we long for the day that Revelation 21.3 describes. And behold, the dwelling place of God is with man in perfect unity and harmony for all eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you're a good God. You're a faithful God. Pray that the words that were just spoken and heard would go through your filter that only your words would remain. Lord, as we strive after you in this life, so many distractions, Lord, I pray that we would set our eyes on you, that we would look to you, who is the author and the perfecter, the finisher of our faith, that we long for your courts, that we long to be in your presence thank you that you are dwelling in us. Those who put their faith and trust in you, what a beautiful thing. To know that you are guiding us, that you are for us, that you are with us, and that you always will be. Pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.